Dr. Francis Collins has had a distinguished career by any measure. A leading figure in the mapping of the human genome sequence, he's worked to translate that discovery into a revolution in medical treatment. In 11 years as director of the National Institutes of Health, he's overseen a nearly 40% growth in the agency's budget. He'll be stepping down as director at the end of the year, but continuing to lead the laboratory at the National Human Genome Research Institute. I spoke with him about some of the big questions. Good to have you on. It is nice to be with you, Tom. And I wanted to ask the basic question because, you know, you've been tied up with NIH for decades, and including <sighs> running it for 11 years. But sometimes we take a step back and say, well, if I had a blank sheet, what would this organization actually look like? Have you given that thought to NIH, and what would that thought be? You know, Tom, it's an interesting question. When Harold Varmus left after he had been NIH director for about seven years, uh, he wrote an article in Science about how NIH is really way too complicated. It should be reorganized into about six institutes instead of 27. I think at that point, there weren't even quite 27. And it made a big buzz out there. And I thought about that in the course of the last 12 years overseeing the organization. Uh, yeah, I suppose if you could hit the reset button and put together an org chart, it would not have 42 direct reports as I currently do. Uh, anybody who studies uh, organizations of businesses would say that's just not workable. But you know what? It kind of works the way it is. I'm not sure I'm a fan of a major restructuring because what it gives you with these 27 institutes, each of whom has an institute director who's a world-class scientist, is you have a really amazing brain trust there of leadership. And I depend on those people. And I've now recruited most of them over these 12 years. So I'm not sure I would reset things. I would reorganize some of what we're doing. And that's actually the basis for this proposal for ARPA-H, this new component of NIH that would function like DARPA does for defense, where you take high-risk projects and you would move them at exceptional speed and you would basically have NIH uh, function in more of a venture capital mode. I'd like to see a lot more of that happen, and I hope this will get launched in the coming months because that would be a part of NIH that we haven't had uh, that we could really benefit from. Frankly, a lot of it, it really works well. We are the most admired and largest supporter of biomedical research in the world. So I wouldn't want to make a huge um, explosion happen here. But adding some new things like our page, that would be great. Well, let's keep McKinsey Company out of there, and then no radical ideas will happen. But uh, No comment, no comment. <laughs> but the ARPA-H, that would be, say, a good place to house things like the million-person tests going on and those big projects that well, cross-cut. I've had the privilege of being able to start, uh, like the Million Person All of Us program, is going to be an incredible foundation for lots of interesting research going forward. A million people who are fully involved as partners in research, making all of their data available, their electronic health records, their genome sequences, lots of information about their health practices. That's going to be a way in which we learn a lot about not just how to treat disease, but importantly, how to keep you from getting sick in the first place, the prevention part. Yeah, that's been one of the privileges of being an IH director is seeing projects like that that have sort of the right moment to happen, convincing the Congress that they're worth investing in. 
the brain initiative is another one like that where we now have oh goodness hundreds of scientists working together many of them are engineers figuring out how the brain works and that would not have happened without the opportunity to pull a big bold project together and ask congress to help support it and what has been the biggest challenge in running an organization that big and that diverse i'm guessing it's maybe the lack of opportunity to do science yourself, perhaps, and peer into a microscope once in a while? You know, I've tried to keep myself anchored in the reality of research. So I've continued to run a research lab, uh, Tom, since I arrived at NIH in 1993. I have a group of about 10 uh, incredibly hardworking, devoted uh, staff scientists. I have a lot of computational experts now because that's the way the science is going. And post-bac students, uh, three of them this year, are just fantastic. And it gives me a chance to really keep my hand in. We're working on type 2 diabetes. We're working on this rare form of premature aging called progeria. It's very exciting. In fact, as I step away from NIH director role, I will step back into that lab more uh, extensively. I hope they're ready to see more of me. So you're not retiring from work. You're just leaving the seat as head of NIH. That's right. Uh, After 12 years plus, it's time for a new vision, new leader. That's the longest any NIH director uh, appointed by presidents has ever served. And I've now actually served three presidents and no previous NIH director has served more than one. So yeah, my shelf life looks like it's kind of reaching its limits and it's time to bring on somebody. And if I am going to not stick it out here for the whole uh, Biden first term, then it's good to give the president a chance uh, to appoint somebody before the term gets too late. Well, I'm hoping the next director will find a way to convince Congress to tunnel Route 355 under the NIH, and we won't have any more exits like that. Oh, now, now, now. (laughs) What what has it been like, and how have you dealt personally with the pressures from the pandemic? Because there's a kaleidoscope of things going on, science, health, and frankly, political. Yeah, and I guess it's fair to say this has been the most intense experience that you could imagine as NIH director. Um, I've been pretty much flat out, probably 90% of my time focused on COVID uh, since January 2020. Um, And I edited it up. It's about a 100-hour-a-week job now trying to just juggle all of the parts of this the development of the vaccines, which was fantastically successful in a record speed with amazing outcome of vaccines that are safe and remarkably effective, but also working on therapeutics, developed a partnership with industry called Active, which has 20 companies uh, working with NIH, FDA, CDC to really speed up the process of identifying possible therapies and getting them tested in rigorous clinical trials. And diagnostics, Uh, we have a program called RADx, Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics, which has moved forward the ability to develop new technologies for testing for the virus in a way that's never been done before, and which right now today is one of the reasons you can find those home testing kits at the pharmacy, because that was developed in a remarkable timetable uh, by our program. So yeah, it has been utterly consuming, and it's sort of paradoxical. I feel so proud of the scientific community for what was possible to do in the face of this pandemic. And so frustrated that in the state of vaccine resistance, uh, we have not fully benefited from that. And we still have more than a thousand people dying every day from COVID, almost all of them unvaccinated. Almost all of those deaths, therefore, were preventable. 
And somehow we may have won in the area of science advances. We have not really won in terms of public communication to convince those 65 million unvaccinated people that they're putting themselves at a terribly unnecessary risk. All right. And I wanted to ask, too, you mentioned the pharmaceutical industry, which has been a big partner in this whole push. And over the years, the government has had kind of a love-hate relationship with the pharmaceutical industry, but it is a source of innovation and great products, and they're costly to bring to market. If you could change anything about that industry from the standpoint of a scientist and research funder, what would it be? What could they do differently maybe to, I don't know, get the perception that they're better citizens? You know, I think it's easy to beat up on the pharmaceutical industry. Before I was NIH director, I'm not sure I really had that good a concept of how they operate, how they do their science. One of my goals, Tom, has been to try to build better partnerships with industry. There is a lot of talent, a lot of resources. So seven years ago, working with a number of leaders, particularly Michael Dolston of Pfizer, we set up something called AMP, the Accelerating Medicines Partnership. Let's get the best scientists in academia, government, and industry around the same table. And let's ask, what are the things that are holding us all up that we could go faster on if we did it together and did so in an open access format? NIH is not going to get engaged in something that's going to benefit a single company. So uh, we formed this project on Alzheimer's and on diabetes and on rheumatoid arthritis, and that was going pretty well. So we added schizophrenia, (laughs) and we're now doing one on Parkinson's disease, and pretty soon there's going to be one on gene therapy and a new kind of heart failure that needs a lot of attention. And bringing those experts together, this has been incredibly gratifying. And I think uh, we did it the way you would want to see it done. Everybody has skin in the game. The government contributes half the funds. Industry contributes half the funds, and we work together to decide how to expend them. And they're very rigorous milestones, and they have to be met. Otherwise, you pull the plug. It has been a learning experience. I think what's happened is a lot of the pharmaceutical company scientists who kind of thought academics are more interested in publishing papers than in helping people, which is one of those attitudes you find out there, have learned otherwise. And a lot of the academic scientists who thought, oh, you know, those pharmaceutical people, all they want to do is make money and their scientists aren't that great. They've figured out, oh my gosh, these people are fantastic. This is what we need more of, is that kind of willingness to work together. And I feel a sense of that in COVID-19 has certainly brought that even more into play. So what would I change? I'd say, let's do more of that. Let's have fewer lawyers in the room. Sorry, lawyers. Uh, Let's figure out how we can do things without being so risk averse and having so many ways that sort of we can't share this or we can't share that. There's a lot we can share. But I think we're in a good place. The American ecosystem involving government, academia, industry, philanthropy, and stakeholders is remarkable what it can do if you actually get everybody in the same room, around the same table, at least virtually. And I think we could do a lot more of that. All right. So we've knocked off lawyers and consultants, but uh, let me... I wanted to continue with a question about the genomics of the medicine field. And, of course, even if you weren't NIH director, you would have had a claim to fame as leading the mapping of the human genome. Since that time, and it's getting to be 20 years or so, how would you gauge the progress of what the potential of that mapping is versus what we're able to do based on it at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it is 20 years. The publication of the first draft of the human genome uh, was in 2001. So here we are 20 years later. You know, there's something called the first law of technology, which is that when there is a significant technological advance, 
people will always overestimate its immediate implications and consequences and underestimate its long-term consequences. That has applied precisely here. I think there were some crazy statements that were made in the immediate wake of the Genome Project, hopefully not many by me, that said, oh, everything is going to change overnight. Uh, You'll go to your doctor and everything will be revamped because your genome sequence will drive that. Most of us haven't yet seen that happen unless, of course, we're somebody who unfortunately got a diagnosis of cancer. There, now you can start to see how this has been revolutionary. Cancer is just a totally different kind of problem now because you don't want to have your cancer treated without knowing exactly what caused those good cells to go bad in your situation. Every cancer is different at the DNA level. Everybody should really be able to find out what that is and then optimize the treatment, whether it's a drug or immunotherapy. So that's been a big consequence. Another one I would point to is the way in which we're now able particularly in the newborn nursery, where there are puzzling circumstances of a newborn that doesn't seem to be quite flourishing and you're not quite sure what's going on, getting a genome sequence, which can now be done in like two days for $1,000, which is remarkable. Remember, the first one cost $400 million, uh, gives you an answer that can be actionable immediately. That has been transformative for that field. And certainly in research, Tom, I mean, a graduate student today working in any area of biology, just can't imagine how you ever did anything without access to the complete genome sequence of whatever organism you're working on with a click of your mouse. They just, it's, it's impossible to contemplate how research happened without those resources at your fingertips. So it's been transformative, but the best is yet to come, I think, in terms of the way in which this will really change other aspects of medicine. And here again, that brings me back to that all of us program and those million people whose complete genomes are going to be part of the way in which we figure out how do we use this to help people stay healthy? How do we go from one size fits all to really precision health? And let me ask a personal question. You are a person known to be a man of faith. And in this largely secular age that we live in, often people say, well, faith and science are incompatible. I mean, in some sense, you're living proof that that isn't true. But how do you answer that question? It is unfortunate that there seems to be, at least in our society, a general sense in a lot of people's minds uh, that faith and science are just basically incompatible and that uh, you got to pick one or the other. I think that's a terrible tragedy. They are different ways of knowing. They are different ways of answering questions, but they ask they, they answer different questions. Science is really good at answering questions about how things work. It is a reliable way of understanding nature. That's what I've spent my professional life on. But science doesn't help me so much with the why questions. Why am I here? Why is there something instead of nothing? What, what, what exactly are we supposed to be doing here? What's the meaning of life? I'm interested in those questions, too. And I was an atheist back in my early 20s and then discovered there was something really missing. I felt like my opportunity to ask and answer questions was impoverished by being totally focused on what you might call metaphysical naturalism, which says it's science and nothing else. That's scientism. That's not just science. And to be able to live my days, both as a person of faith and a person of science, greatly enlarges and enriches my experience. And I find no conflict between those perspectives, as long as you're careful about exactly how you're applying them. And I wish that was more broadly appreciated. I wrote a little book about that called The Language of God 15 years ago, which 
amazingly, uh, people are still reading. <laughs> Maybe one of the things I'll do once I step away from being an IH director is to provide a second edition because I think it's about time for an update. All right. I guess in some ways then medicine brings it together because ethics and religion teach us how to treat one another. And maybe science gives us the medical tools to do that when those are indicated. That's well said. And I think those things do belong together. And for me, that's been a source of great reassurance uh, that there is a foundation, not just of understanding, you know, DNA and how it works, but also understanding moral principles and how best they can be applied in difficult situations. Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, a job he'll be leaving at the end of the year. We'll post this interview in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon. Um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me. And he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.